Hell no. No one is like, you know what is going to get me laid? Art history. You know, it's, it's not the one. It's not the one. From The Advocate magazine and in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to Kimberly Drew. She's a writer, an art curator, and the author of the new book called This Is What I Know About Art. As she writes in the book, Kimberly is not the typical art historian, and she's not the typical activist. All of that is a big part of why I think she has such interesting insights into what art is, what it can be used for, its purpose, and what the future of art and access to art might look like. We also talk about how art isn't something that needs to be solved, it's not a puzzle, and as you'll hear, I very much fall into the category of people who can be sometimes afraid of not understanding or quote-unquote getting the meaning of something. And as Kimberly says, that's okay. Getting it is not the point. Now, if you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you prefer to listen, and leave a comment, please. Things like that really help us to grow as a show, so thank you for that. All right, without further ado, here's Kimberly. You know, I've been following your career and career changes for a while. And in the last couple of years, you've really expanded and are in so many different spaces. And I just wonder, how do you now describe what you do? Mm, that's a great place to start. Right now, it's absolutely a tricky time to define it. Um, but I would say, um, in short, I'm a writer, I'm a curator, and yeah, writer and curator feel at home right now. You're often described as the former social media manager at the Met. Mm -hmm. I think people say that because it's impressive, but I also think it's a bit easier to just say that mm. than to say everything you said, but also like she has a book and she models, but she doesn't pursue modeling and all those lists. <laughs> right. I'm like a gun for hire at most times. But it's interesting when I was leaving the Met, that was one of the big quandaries I had was like, how do I define myself in certain settings, especially showing up as a Black queer femme presenting person? A lot of spaces, you know, people don't necessarily anticipate my presence there, whether I'm at a gala at table one or whatever. Um, and so it was always easy to say like, oh, I work at the Met. Um, and now that I'm out of that phase of my life, it's really interesting to try to say, you know, on a day to day, my days look very different. Are you tired of talking about the Met? Do you want to move away from every interviewer asking about it? Not at all. I mean, it's three years of my life. It's the longest I've worked anywhere. It's an institution that I grew up going to as a child. Um, I think it's one of the most important cultural institutions in the world. And um, I was able to be a part of the fold there from, you know, very, it was 25 when I got there. And the way that I was embraced by that community is something that is one of the great privileges of my life. So more than happy to talk about the experience of being there. I think that's really nice to hear. I, I've heard you talk about it many times, so I'd love to actually move on. Yeah, 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 <laughs> That's for <okay>. sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in the book, you write that you are not a typical art historian and you're not a typical activist. Mm. And I know that people are more familiar with your role as a historian. Can you talk a bit more about the work you do as an activist? Yeah, absolutely. For me, I always thought about activism as grand sacrifices. I think we're socialized around thinking about activism as hunger strikes, as, you know, people tying themselves to trees, uh, you know, demonstrating on the, the picket lines. And there is this high level of risk that I've always associated with the label. And it's, so I was always hesitant to align myself with that because I 
you know, for most of my career, I was working in institutions and I am no stranger to luxury. I really actually love having a relatively cushy life and I don't feel ashamed by that. But on the other hand, I've, through conversations with friends, have really come to better understand a more dynamic definition of activism, wherein activists are people who believe in things. Activists are people who want to challenge the status quo. Activists are people who are asking who's in the room, who isn't in the room, and how can we get them there? I don't know. I, I feel really thankful for being able to embolden that ideology um, because I think if there is a through line, you know, we we're talking about like, what do you do? If there's a through line through all of the work that I've done. It's really been saying this is the world I want to see. And I think at its very base level, that's a lot of what activism is. Yeah. And we talk so much about labels on this podcast, usually in terms of gender and sexuality. But I think like taking on the label activist is also incredibly meaningful and significant. Right. I mean, even thinking about in within our communities, especially too, it's oftentimes there is a politic around like my existence is resistance, you know, and it, it, it's a really complicated one when thinking about gender and sexuality. And what does it mean to be really specific in the ways in which we're labeling ourselves? What does it mean to accept or refuse labels and understand that just because we're not normative, so to say, that doesn't necessarily automatically mean that everything you're doing is the most radical thing in the world. You write that art and activism has always been bound together for you. And I wonder, like, if you've always been aware of those two, like, working together. I don't know that I've always been aware. I think in recent years, I've really come to understand, and I, t I write about this in the book, but really understanding the incredible need for art to better understand the world around us. Um, so in the book, I write about going to see Morgan Parker's reading of her poetry and one of like the hardest moments of my life and career and hearing her be able to articulate a feeling that I just couldn't put words to really, it was like putting on glasses or something or just being or removing like blinders or something. I was able to better understand the texture of a moment. And even right now, there's so much to be said about how images of, you know, hospitals or images of, of people in PPE, like they better help us understand the gravity of whatever is going on. And so I think that that tie for me is something that I think I'm still continuing to learn because I think oftentimes you're taught like, okay, this is the art, you know, post-war. This is the art, you know, this is where abstract expressionism came from. But there's so many different vantage points on thinking about how art and um, I guess activism or, you know, history run together. Yeah. And I, I asked that too, because I assume like you were, before you became a historian, you were a fan. And as a fan of art, it's easy to look at something like the official portrait of Barack Obama in DC and not know that it was painted by a black gay man, Kendi Wiley, mm -hmm. and not know that the Michelle Obama portrait by Amy Sherald is a massive departure from like the history of First Lady portraits. It's easy just to view them mm. and let, move on. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think there is something, you know, getting getting there and viewing them and taking them in is in and of itself such an achievement and such an important thing to do. I think we can get ourselves in so much trouble sometimes where it's like, oh, you know, you saw it, but you didn't understand it. It's like, you saw it. Like, that's awesome. Or you had this interaction, let's say, with this artwork or um, with the story behind it. Those encounters for me are like what life is sewn together by. <laughs> um and then you can dig deeper because you need that primary encounter, right, to even get to that information. 
And I don't know if I want to place a judgment as good or bad on it, but there's sometimes a scenario where people like us could be staring at a piece of art and you're explaining the intention and like the meaning behind creating this to make X point. But me as a viewer is like, but I don't get that looking at it. Mm. And I wonder if we should get it. I don't think that every, you know, I don't think you have to get everything in the way that, in the way that I think people kind of are obsessed with like, you turn your head to the left and then you see that, you know, this painting was made in 1938. You know, like, I, I think it's okay to simply look at something and like it or not like it. I think it's okay to look at something and have that inform the way that you're looking at other things. Like that, to me, that appetite for encounter is so much more important than whether or not you get the thing. Oh, I guess people like me are scared to not get a piece of art, but it doesn't matter if I get it or not. It matters a thousand other things. Right. I think for me that the thing that's most powerful, I guess, and I don't want to get in trouble with like art historians either. I think the thing that's most powerful for me is that if you're coming to a work and you're willing to learn more about it, that's a win, right? If you're coming to a work and like I said, like if you can look at a painting or something or even like um, there was this uh, Da Vinci piece that came up to auction and was sold for like all these millions of dollars. And it's kind of cool that someone could be like, you know, what? I don't like that Da Vinci. Like I know that it's worth twenty eight million dollars, you know, now that it's gone to auction in this way. But I don't think it's his best Da Vinci or, you know, I'm not so interested in that artwork. I'd actually rather look at like, you know, this other painter, whatever. I think being able to operate from a space of agency around art, I guess that's what my point is. The agency part to me is the best thing because the artist's intention yeah, that's a really valuable bit of information. And people dedicate their careers to building monographs, to building exhibitions, um, to recording these really necessary and vital stories about a work of art. But I think as uh, as a visitor to these works, the that, that confidence to visit a work, that confidence to make your own decision, I think is equally important. Um, and I think that gets lost when we're like, well, do I get it? Am I smart enough? Am I, you know, this enough or that enough to have this encounter? I think that's such a great point. And I also think that people are able to look at a thousand things. They're able to walk into the gap and like say if they like or don't like a t-shirt, but they feel more uncomfortable looking at a work of art and saying, I don't like it. Or like a song. If I put on a song and you don't like it, it'll just say, can you, can you change this song? People don't feel that same, con- or like you taste a, you know, vegan pizza and you're like, I want real cheese. You know, those things don't happen in the same way with art. And so beyond whether you get it or not, and I, and I don't, I don't mean to like push back so much, but I'm like, beyond whether you get it or not, it's like, you're there, like you're learning. That is what institutions at their best can do. These are institutions of learning. It's not about, you know, everything that you know, once you get there, it's really like your ability to take things in. That's exciting. Just before we wrap up the section, when you look at a piece of art, what are you looking for? Are you looking to feel something or like, what is your priority? Mm. I think when I'm encountering a work of art, I kind of go in, hopefully with a blank slate. Like I realized the other, like a a few, I guess months ago, I was looking at this painter's show that I love and I was hungry and I just, I left the exhibition. I was like, I'm not in the right place. (laughs) I gotta go. Like, love you, Lee Krasner, but I gotta go find lunch because I can't do this. But for the most part, I try to come in with a base level of just like, okay, I'm ready to receive. Because it is like a sensory experience, right? Like you want to be in the right headspace to take things in. Um, 
but what am I looking for? I don't know. I think sometimes it's a story. I really do love stories and um, who the artist is, when they made it. Those things fascinate and excite me, but I know that's not everyone's truth. Um, but for me, I, I, I kind of am blown away when it's like, you know, those little details of, you know, this work was made here for this reason or this color is no longer made because there's this like weird toxin in the paint you know like those types of things I'm I'm always really thrilled by um because those are the things that kind of like stick to my ribs I always like have gravitated towards like Jackson Pollock which sounds mm-hmm. cliche Mm-mm. I was so excited when I heard that like there was like objects that he like left in the paint like a nail mm-hmm. it was the most exciting thing to me to like discover that well because then you better understand like this is a thing that was made You know, it's not just like the final project. It's like this process happened and this human did this process, which is the most everyone can get that. Like a man went to this canvas and made this thing. Easiest thing to get in the world. Whether you understand the movement, why, all those intentions, all those other things. Sure. Next steps. But the very base, that humanity, that level of connection and understanding that um, a person did this action, I think is, yeah, it's cool. You know, when we talk about art, we're not just talking about paintings and sculptures. I think, like, the Museum of Modern Art is so important because it displays, like, seemingly everyday things. I bring that up because a lot of a lot of everyday things in our current world are digital. We no longer have ticket stubs from concerts. And I wonder, like, how is that changing the art world? How is the art world like, grappling with these changes? I mean, especially right now, right? Because we cannot go to institutions in the way that we're traditionally used to. Um, There's a big shift that I think that's happening in the arts and the ways that we're encountering. But of course, I think any answer to that question also starts with understanding that there is digital art. There are works that are made specifically for the digital space. Um, And so, you know, in many ways, I'm like, props to you for doing that. Um, In this moment where now we can only view things from home. But yeah, there's many, many ways. But I think the one that I can speak to um, from personal experience is the ways in which social media has allowed institutions to be dialogical with their constituents um, in completely unprecedented ways. You can tweet at MoMA and say, you know, I love this work. (laughs) And you're in conversation with this institution in a way. And that I think is really exciting. Or, you know, if, if there's a really good community manager, you can ask a question about a work and you'll get a response or there's ask a curator day and you can ask a curator about their specialty. Those types of exchanges weren't really happening at the scale that they are today, even 10 years ago. And you mentioned earlier that as a Black queer woman, you're not the uh, typical person people see in these spaces. Are these changes you just detailed expanding the types of people we are seeing in museums and appreciating art? I hope so. <laughs> I surely hope so. The demystifying of art and the like cracking open and making less opaque of the arts has definitely helped people to better understand themselves there. Um, I, I write in the book that I, I grew up going to museums. I grew up in a relatively artsy family and I never, ever thought that I would work in an institution. And I I just don't know that all of my white peers feel that way, you know? Um, It just never felt like something that was available. And so I think, and I hope, that social media and digital communication um, is helping a future, you know, current generation and future generations to better understand where they could find themselves within the fold, should they choose to go there. Absolutely. Um, you went to Smith, which is an all-girls school, right? It's a women's college, yes. Oh, excuse me. Oh, oh my God, that's so offensive, actually, all-girls. 
I've been watching Mrs. America, so I'm like, excuse me, women's college. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's an, a women's college. I just wonder, um, at that time, how was queerness treated there? Yeah, I mean, it depends. It's 2,800 or so students, and I think for each person on campus, it really did vary. Um, I just remember rolling up on campus for, I guess, the first day and seeing a huge pride flag on one of, the, we call our dorms houses, on one of the like front lawns of one of the houses. And I was like, wow, okay, this is very different than my like traditional, super conservative New England prep school. Um, I'd come from like boarding school life, which was a whole other story. Um, and so it was definitely a space where there was a lot of multiplicity more so than anything else. It was like, this is also a way of being in this kind of really beautiful and abundant way. So it it was definitely a a huge presence on campus. It is of course, like a very, it's very well known for its queerness. Um, but more than anything else, I think it's just like, it's a space that promotes so many different ways of being because like, there's a huge ACE population. Like no one talks about that, but like, there's there's just so many ways where it's like you could always find someone who aligned or wanted to listen to your POV on your identity or sexuality, which is really cool. Were you considered like the cool girl there or growing up? Uh, growing up, absolutely not. Um, I definitely had a difficult time figuring out who I was. And I think in many ways it made me so susceptible to bullying. Um, and so a lot of my kind of pre-middle school life was just not being a popular kid. I was very nerdy. Um, and that kind of transferred over to high school, but it was like a more academic, rigorous environment. So the nerdiness couldn't even cape anymore. It was just like, oh, you're just uncool. Um, and then I got to Smith and I think for a number of reasons, I was able to find uh, a community of people who affirmed my identity. Like I was saying, where there it was like the least lonely I've ever felt. Um, and I, and I guess it's a politic I also kind of bring to the arts, like defying this loneliness. Um, but on campus for sure, I was like always trying to find myself engaged, whether it was with black students Alliance or community service orgs. Um, I was, I was an athlete at one point, which is a joke. Um, but I was always trying to throw myself into community with others. And so it helped me build a community I ask that because I think you're like, cons- like, I think you're cool. I think you're considered cool. I just wondered if like, that was like a big adjustment to make. Like, Yeah, oh no, God. it was definitely, it was definitely, I mean, it still is always like, oh, people are like looking at what I'm doing and want to do it too, which is so funny because on paper, it's like, yeah, this art nerd from, you know, like it doesn't make sense, but in this beautiful moment where, you know, even like thinking about like the apeshit video with Beyonce in the Louvre, like art is so cool right now oh that's such a great point because no one majors in art history thinking it's like gonna be the cool thing to do hell no no one is like you know what is gonna get me laid art history you know it's it's not the one it's not the one that's so funny what did you mean when you said that you had difficulties figuring out who you were growing up I just tried on a lot of different hats I I was really trying it's so hard to be almost like the person I don't know. I wish I could talk to my younger self in many ways um, because at this point in my life, I feel so fully myself. Um, and I was, I spent a lot of my, my younger years running away from the part of me that like really loved just bore, like what I thought was traditionally boring things. And, and I think in that moment, it was like, it just made me almost like 
Like my personality was like way thin. And so I could be blown in any direction and that made me susceptible to any criticism. And um, yeah, so I was lost for a bit. And I think through some really integral friendships, I was able to be like, okay, this is who, this is who we're going to be. And the least we can do is love ourselves. The very least that we can do before we go to others to try to get that confirmation. Yeah. You know, I read the recent interview you did with Texas Isaiah, the photographer, and um, he also previously shot you in 2015. And in the interview, you say that the picture he took of you is one of the most important photographs I have ever had taken of me. Why is that photo so important? It was at that kind of like personal tipping point for me in kind of like the early 2010s when I was leaving school, coming into New York, trying to find my footing, didn't really want to be seen, but wanted to have an impact like such a Leo. I was like, don't look at me, look at me. Um, And going into the session with Texas Isaiah, I was just like, I want to look like the people that he portrays in his images. I want to be this confident person. I want to be um, beautiful in the way that his images really represent beauty in all the subjects. And I went in with all these decisions about who I would be. And through that session and through that, like just being able to sit with someone who was asking questions that I just, it just felt like a slowness was granted um, towards figuring out who I was more so than like going in like so hard and like, this is what I want to look like. It was like the, the person that I was, was kind of drawn out through that session. Um, and when I look at that image now, it's just like, there's a softness in my posture that especially photos of that time just do not have. Like now I can look at a camera and be fine for the most part. But back then I didn't have that. And I didn't always feel as respected as I did in that exchange with Texas Isaiah. So it was both the shooting experience and the photograph itself. 100%. Wow. You are not a creator, I believe, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I say that because I think it would be easy to call you an artist based on your fashion. Mm. Because like how fashionable and creative you can be. And I just wonder if you can talk about how you view fashion in that sense. Yeah. I think, yeah, my sense of like self-presentation is the most creative thing. Um you know, every accessory that I put on, every shirt, every shoe is a story that I want to tell about myself or about places that I've been to. Getting dressed for me is like a whole ritual. Um, I, I'd never, never rush it if I can avoid rushing it. But because I, I do really think it does help, help oneself to better um, introduce themselves to the world. And even thinking about like that 2013 and beyond or earlier moment before I was like, quote unquote, a cool kid. Like I didn't dress myself well because I didn't want to be seen. I was hiding from the world. And for me now, my sense of like style, I guess, is this opportunity every day to say like, this is who I am. And this is how I want to be seen. That's so interesting. And so when did the fashion and like makeup and self-presentation like start to become so important to you? It's a complicated one because I think in many ways, the further that I got in my career in the arts, the more I realized that if I wanted to grow or find myself in rooms, that I needed to address the part. And so it started from this very kind of like, I'm submitting to this relatively elitist environment in these particular ways. But very specifically, because this is one of the more ridiculous stories of my life, I was at uh, Men's Fashion Week with some friends and we were at a club. 
And one friend was like, oh, Rihanna's on her way. And I was like, ha, 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 that's so funny. And then Rihanna showed up at the club. And so we're like at the club with Rihanna and I am in sweatpants, <laughs> like not sweatpants, like a sweatshirt and jeans. And it was just like not a cute, not like I just didn't have it at that point. I wasn't trying as hard as maybe I could have. I left the section to go to the bathroom and came back and this, the bouncer wouldn't let me into the section. And I was like, but those are my friends. And they just wouldn't let me in. And that for me was this moment of like, not from the most altruistic space, but just like, yeah, I want to dress the part. Like I want to be seen in these ways. And so I'm stepping my game up. And after that, I just kind of didn't look back. So it's not like the, the best, like standing up for blah, blah, blah. It was just like, no, I really just was like, fuck this sweatshirt shit. Like I'm going to be a bad bitch now. Like, that's it. I mean, similar to me, like, I started, like, dressing up and, like, caring more about what I look like when I would, like, go out looking like crap. And that was only when I would, like, run into somebody I was, like, attracted to. Right. I was like, damn it. <laughs> right. Right. I looked great yesterday. <laughs> Yo, the crush quotient is real when you, like. I agree. Yeah. And then if you can turn yourself into that crush, you're unstoppable. You know what? While you brought up crushes, I have a question for you about that. Mm. You're so open. <laughs> Are you excited? <laughs> yeah. You were so open about your professional life. You posted what your salary was after you left the Met. And yet you keep your personal life and dating pretty locked down in comparison. Mm. Can you talk about that, like, calculation? <laughs> There's no real calculation. I just always end up dating people who are, like, relatively private. So I've dated so many people who don't even have social media, which is wild. That's the hottest thing. Right? You're like, what? You don't, what? You're not on Twitter 10 hours a day? But yeah, for the most part, it's been that. And then, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting balance because also, too, with the size following that I have, it, it just breaks, like, even posting my family feels weird because it's this invitation into their lives in a way that I know I've signed on for everything that I share. I'm giving full agency and I have full control. I know what I'm doing. I get the notifications and all those things. But if I post a picture of my dad, who is very traditionally handsome and all love all the gay boys in my life, but they're like, your dad's so hot. I'm like, this is this strange invitation into my people. And I feel relatively protective over them. Oh, because one gay guy thinks he's telling you your dad's hot. He doesn't know that a thousand people are doing that. Right. Or it's just like, I, I don't always want my people to be gawked at in the way that I think social media invites, whether it's good or bad. You know, it's like, yeah, my dad is very handsome. I got his jeans. I love that. And I show them his, him the comments and he's very, very, very flattered. Very flattered. Such an Aries man. So flattered. But I, I also am just like, I don't know if I want the people in my world to become fodder or something in social land. And I, I don't know. I don't know why that's my first instinct, but I feel really like close to the chest about the people that I love and sharing them. I think that makes total sense. You know, preparing to talk to you, I forgot how young you are. And I just wonder, like, how do you think about how much you've accomplished at your age, but also how does it reframe what you want to accomplish going forward? It's... Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it's, I was having this kind of internal dialogue yesterday, um, trying to remember all of the things that I've accomplished is a really difficult thing for my kind of personality type. Like, like what is next? What am I doing? What will be my imprint? How will I, you know, how will I have impact? And I like look around, I'm like, sis, like you gotta chill because you have done a lot of things. Um, and it's not always about, uh, you know, I, I, was in this really beautiful exchange with one of my like dear sister friends and mentors. And she said to me, like, you are not potential. We are not potential. Um, 
and that's kind of been my mantra, especially in this this moment, um, to try to be just like a little bit softer with the version of myself that thinks I need to be doing every single thing. Um, but in terms of things I want to accomplish in the future, I don't know. Sky feels like the limit, which is fun. Um, but yeah, I haven't quite figured all of that out just yet. And the world is changing by the minute. Um, so I think that flexibility is something that, you know, I'm queering time over here. Um, so I feel really agile, but yeah, it's, it's a definite, it's a definite, um, struggle on a day to day to just say like, you have done a lot in that, that for right now, at least for today, like we're going to take a nap because that's enough. Like you don't have to, um, solve every problem of the world. Yeah. You know, the book is called what I know about art. And uh, not to like ask an eighth grade question, but I wonder like what you don't know about art and like more specifically, like what questions do you still have about it? Yeah. Yeah. So the title is This Is What I Know About Art, which was really fun um, titling because I don't know, I, I, I was kind of like that joke on like, I don't get it or like, you know, whatever. It's like, this is what I'm bringing that I know, which I think everyone has agency to define and articulate for themselves. Because um, when I was writing the book, I didn't feel like I could. Like I got pitched by Penguin Teen in this brilliant collective, Pocket Change Collective. All of us were tasked with writing these books. I said yes, kind of like in a blackout fit of like overachiever rage. And then was like, oh shit, I actually have to do it. But at any rate, what I don't know about art, uh, I don't know. I mean, right now, I don't know how... Our industry is going to move forward after this pandemic. You know, um, there's, you know, this incredible artist relief program that's um, giving non-discretionary funds to artists and something like 11,000 artists that were um, that were interviewed or did the survey. 80 percent of them noted a loss of income and no no hope for how to bring that income back. You know, New York Times reported that something like maybe 50 percent of institutions will be, you know, in some sort of like financial um, struggle, if not closure after this this virus. And so I think what I don't know right now is how we will recover. But I do look to left and right at institutions that, you know, like the ICA Boston that has become like a, they, they have like a victory garden that they're supplying food to the community um, or institutions that are you know, taking some of their funding and providing it to local organizations. Um, I do know that there is hope out there, but, you know, if I'm being quite honest, I just don't know how, how we're going to get to the other side of this. What a amazing and depressing place to leave it on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for talking to us, Kimberly. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Kimberly Drew. Her new book is called This Is What I Know About Art, and it's available right now. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. And if you're already subscribed, please help us spread the word on social media. Sending a tweet or a Facebook post, those are all amazing ways to help us grow. So thank you for that. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. The show's on Twitter at LGBTQPod. Come connect with us if you want to recommend a guest or just say hi. This podcast is brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and GLAAD.org. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye.